Uh, before we read the passage today, I want to just share a couple things with you, uh, just uh, for fun. Um, I wanted to say, like, uh, you know, sometimes when I stand up here or sit up here, whatever I do up here, uh, you might think, oh, well, you know, Andrew reads this stuff and teaches this stuff, but, you know, does he actually, like, sort of apply it to his own life? And I want to just uh, tell you about something that happened to me over the last uh, three weeks. And, uh, and if it wasn't for uh, being able to teach through the book of John and share the lessons that I've learned through John with you, I wouldn't have had two great opportunities in evangelism that I've had with two people in the community. So I want to share with you just for, uh, a couple passages that we went through, the lessons that I learned from the passages and how I relate them to the church, and just to show you how they apply to my own life. And like I said, without going through the, this last sort of couple months in the, in the ministry, I would have been short for words, potentially, in those evangelistic opportunities. So let's read John chapter 15 and see if there's anything else applicable that we can live out in our lives. <laughs> John 15, 1-6. And let's uh, stand and hopefully I'll, get, I'll stick to my notes so that uh, I don't go off in two different tangents and confuse you all. So John 15, chapter, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Let's pray to the Lord. Uh, Jesus, this passage is, uh, is, is loaded, like all, most of your word is, God, with just uh, crazy things to think through and ways to apply it to our lives. Um, the language is repetitive in lots of ways, um, uh, so in some ways it's confusing to follow through, but in other ways it's clear. So I just pray, God, as I sort through this with the congregation today, that you help me to make this uh, very clear to the people what you're trying to convey what you're conveying, conveying to the disciples 2,000 years ago, and what you want us to take away from it today, 2,000 years later. Thank you that you were, uh, you were um, completely for and with the disciples uh, back then, and the way you provided and took care of them, and the way you do for us as well now. And we're grateful for your love for us, and uh, we look forward to learning from you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we're going to look at one of the most famous analogies uh, that Jesus gave. It's the analogy from a vineyard. From a vineyard. And vineyards would have been something that the Jews in the time of Jesus were very familiar with. I mean, they grew up and lived in an agrarian society. They were familiar with gardening, with horticulture, and uh, practices of the land. And 
they, they were very um, intelligent with that kind of thing. It was very part of their culture. And Israel was known for rich and fertile land. It wasn't by coincidence that God said to them, by the way, I'm giving you a, a, a land full with milk and honey. I mean, it was, a, it was a description to say it's a bountiful, plentiful land. And anyone who's been to Israel can see how uh, beautiful it is even today and how fertile it is. And it was common for Jesus when he wanted to illustrate certain spiritual truths to use agriculture and agrarian uh, principles because that's where he would pull from because with them being familiar with it, it was easy for him to get his points across and relate nature to the spiritual concepts he was trying to convey. So the, the analogy here of the vineyard was for, for Jesus to draw a comparison um, but to help the disciples understand the relationship that existed between God, himself as the Messiah, and his followers. And he's going to, he, we can see this already in verse 1. In verse 1, you notice that uh, God is referred to the vine dresser. Uh, another way you could say it, he's the gardener, gardener of the vineyard. In verse 1, you see Jesus referring himself as the true vine. And we see in verse 5, or sorry, verse 2, we see these reference to branches. And in verse 5, he makes it clear. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. So he makes it clear that God's involved here, he's involved, and the followers are the branches um, uh, both then and now. So while I think this illustration is one of the most famous Jesus has used, because I'm sure many of you have heard this before and worked through it before, and what became apparent to me in my studies, uh, both by listening to other pastors online, on YouTube, um, going on their websites, um, reading commentaries, is that this is also one of the most controversial. It's controversial because depending who you listen to and talk to, you get different interpretations theologically from this passage depending on what you've been taught in the past and what you believe. So my goal today is to present the truth to you that's found contextually within the passage. I'm, I'm going to do the best I can to take off my own priest, my theological lenses, my big orange glasses that I wear for you once in a while. I want to take those off and just let the text speak to you. And, you t and if you have any disagreements with the way I interpret this from the work I've done, that's what the dialogue's for. You can challenge me. But I'm pretty sure theologically we're going to end up on the same page when we work through this together. So let's dive in. Notice in verse 1 that Jesus calls himself the true vine. I am the true vine. He's not just a vine. He is the true one and only vine. Now in our context, that will go usually over our heads. Like, what does that mean? Well, if you're a Jew, that's an important statement. Why? Well, the prophets in the Old Testament would often refer to Israel as being a vine. Israel in the Old Testament was spoken of being a vine. And God was portrayed in the Old Testament through the prophets as God being the vine dresser or the gardener. Now tragically, every time Israel was referred to as the vine in the Old Testament, it was always in the negative context. It was always in the negative. You see, there's an expectation from God as the vine dresser that Israel was to produce good fruit. They were to be obedient to God's commands and be a model to other nations. But sadly, throughout their history, they constantly failed and rebelled and then it ended up falling uh, on God's judgment, under God's judgment and producing no fruit at all. And uh, it's an important thing for you to understand this. And I wanted to show you where in the, pro in the Old Testament these kind of prophecies were spoken of about Israel. <coughs> these are just for fun, uh, just so you have a better biblical knowledge. 
uh, Hosea uh, 10, 1 to 2. Israel is a luxuriant vine and produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. So, pretty clear. Here's Israel. Instead of producing fruit that God wanted them to do, they're producing their own fruit. What are they doing? They're going after false idols and falling into idolatry. What's the result? God's coming in to smash them. He's going to cut them off. He's going to break them down. He's going to judge them. Psalm 80, uh, verses 8 to 14. Now, this is speaking of Israel in Egypt under slavery of Pharaoh and God's deliverance in the Exodus, okay? You removed the vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O God, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Again, God has removed this vine, shown his love, right? He wants them to produce fruit. They've gone after their own ways again into idolatry and rebelling against the commands of God. And now uh, the psalmist is crying out, God, please lift your hand of judgment and restore us. And uh, my favorite one in the Old, Old, the Intest, the New, Old Testament that you'll want to write down, because it's, but it's too long to go through, is Isaiah 5. <coughs> Isaiah 5 is actually my favorite one, describing this, this uh, expectation that God expects them to produce fruit. So you see then that Jesus' illustration to the disciples is important based on Israel's history. By Jesus calling himself the true vine, he, under, he understands himself to be the fulfillment, the fulfillment of God, of what God was hoping for and expecting from Israel. Right? He was hoping for obedience. He was hoping for a beacon, a nation as a beacon to, for evangelistic purposes. He was hoping for a nation that would love him explicitly, with no other uh, love for any any other god. That's what he wanted from Israel, and they never fulfilled their promise, or they never fulfilled their mandate. And Jesus says, I'm here in a contrast to Israel. I'm actually going to accomplish what Israel failed to do. I'm going to accomplish what Israel failed to do. Well, like any normal vine that was full of branches, Jesus, as a true vine, also had branches of his own. And again, we pick this up in verse 2, and we see that these branches are analogous to disciples or followers of Jesus in verse 5. But he highlights two kinds of branches that can abide in him. We pick these up in verse 2. They're non-fruit-bearing and fruit-bearing. Look at this here. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now what's really, really important for you to notice is the location of the non-fruit-bearing branch in relationship to the vine. Where is the non-fruit-bearing location of the branch in regards to the vine. It says, every branch in me, in me, in Christ. Now we know through the passage that this reference to being abiding in or being in is to be in relationship with Jesus. Throughout the whole passage, it's always in that context. So what we learn here is that uh, there's no distinction made between the fruit-bearing plant and the non-fruit-bearing plant in terms of where the, vine, uh, the branch is located. 
They're in the vine. Therefore, according to Jesus, both branches are relationally connected. There's no distinguishing feature between the location of the branch. I mean, this is a dumb illustration, but it proves the point. Like, my left arm is in me. My right arm is in me. It doesn't matter what's hanging off this uh, arm and what's hanging off this arm. If this one's barren and this one's not, they're still in me. They're, lo they're located in me. Again, why is this important? It's important because it's, it says this, that it's possible for a person to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and yet lead a fruitless life. Be a non-fruit-bearing branch. The result then is God takes action. You're, that person is then at risk of falling under God's judgment and risk, the risk is to be taken away. And verse 6 gives a major description of this. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. They're not neatly stacked in the pile on the lawn in the corner. They're thrown in the fire and burned up. This branch, when, when God sees a fruitless life, he, will, he can, in his timing, cut it off and throw it to be burned. Which is a reference then to uh, what happens to a fruitless Christian. It's possible in a moment for someone to start off as a Christian and because of the way they live, a fruitless life, a non-fruitful life would be severed from that relationship. Now I know this makes people in the Christian community extremely uncomfortable. And it became apparent to me as I listened to other pastors and commentaries that they did not see this as truth. I only could find uh, one, one or two sources that actually agreed with this, and virtually everybody else, no matter who I listened to and read, said this is not describing a believer, this is describing a faking believer. I'll give you a couple, uh, a couple of commentaries. Uh, Leon Morris said this, we should not regard this as proof that true believers may fall away. Okay, John MacArthur, this is a picture of an apostate Christian who never genuinely believed and will be taken away in judgment. Okay. And I want to let you hear a nice recording from John Piper. John Piper at a Q&A in a prison. Actually, it's interesting. This is Angola prison. I didn't even know this, but this is the prison I was telling you about when the, the, it, was just, it was the most dangerous prison in the world or in the United States. And then the gospel came in and now it's the safest prison and people are now studying to become pastors and stuff. Remember I told you about that prison a couple of times in my sermons? It actually funny when I found this passage, he's speaking to those Angola, the, the, the prison in Angola. So what's cool is when, uh, if you watch the whole video, these, when you see these inmates stand up and ask the great questions they're asking him, it's hard to believe these guys were on the, were on the streets and were guilty of murder and, I mean, arson and like, you know, whatever else. Like, okay, it's kind of so cool to see these guys. But listen to John, like, an inmate stands up and says, uh, I want to ask you a question, John. And he says, uh, I want to ask you, from John 15, verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, is that talking about a believer or a non-believer? And this is John Piper gives a five-minute answer, and I just give you a minute clip of his answer. Oil is good. Okay. And it bears fruit. I think there are people, quote, in the vine that aren't holy in the vine. They aren't born again in the vine. They aren't really drawing sap from the vine. They're like artificial. There's some of you in this room like that, probably. This room is like a corporate vine. You came here and you're in and you're getting the message and, and you're getting the influence and 
It's not doing anything. It's not bearing any fruit. You're going to go out here just as unborn again as you came in? Maybe. So my answer, right or wrong, my answer is, I believe that John teaches eternal security. I believe that John teaches the perseverance of the saints. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. The people in John 15, I think, who got broken off never were wholly, completely in. And you just have to be careful with, with uh, pictures and parables and images in the New Testament. I'm really glad that he said right or wrong. <clears throat> this is my opinion. Because he's wrong. <laughs> he's wrong. Contextually, he's wrong. I'll give you substantiations from the text. Within the context, there's no mention of the vine dresser recognizing that these people are not producing fruit because of a faulty connection. They're not, you know, when you take a branch and you take a hacksaw and you cut it halfway and it's kind of like limp, half off, half on, or a kid grabs a branch and pulls it and it's kind of half on, half off. This is not a faulty connection. This branch is not severed off the vine and needs to be graft, grafted in. This vine branch is in, well, this branch is in the vine. To the same degree as the fruit bearing plant, there's no distinction. But there's one thing that's important to note about this uh, non-fruit-bearing branch. The failure of the branch to bear fruit has nothing to do with the gardener, has nothing to do with the health of the vine. So it has nothing to do with God. The fruitlessness has nothing to do with God and has nothing to do with Jesus. The failure, the onus is put smack dab on the branches themselves. We see this in the beginning in verse 4. Jesus, throughout the whole passage, asks and commands the disciples to remain in him, abide in him. He pleads with them, you need to abide in me. It's on you to do this. Look at verse 4. Abide in me. Like, in the word abide is remain. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. And, verse, uh, and he says, uh, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Uh, verse 5, um, I am the vine, you the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. So again, this, this onus to be, to, for, for the branch to abide in him. Verse 6, um, if anyone does not abide in me or does not remain in me, he's thrown away. So again, there's a desire for the, the, the branch to remain. And if he doesn't, it's not the God's fault. It's not Jesus' fault. It's the branch's fault. They don't want to abide or remain in him. And verse 7 is the kicker because it starts with if. It's a condition. If you abide in me, so if it's, you know, it's up to you, but if you do this, my, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In other words, I'll, I'll answer your prayer lives, but there's a condition. You have to remain in me. You have to abide in me. So we see over and over Jesus' emphasis on the branch to persevere, to remain, to abide. And through that, fruit acceptable to God will come forth. Again, it's important to note that it's nothing to do with the faithfulness of the vine dresser or the vine itself. So let's look at the fruit-bearing branch now. The fruit-bearing branch in verse 2 says, uh, uh, he who, uh, every, uh, sorry, And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear fruit. So again, here, the, the branch that wants to remain in the vine, this, God prunes this vine, or pr prunes this branch. 
Some translations will have the word make clean. So he cleans the branch. Now initially, when I was thinking about this, how do God prune a branch? Automatically, I start thinking, I know how we do it. It must be through discipline. It must be through discipline, right? You know, when you want to bring more fruit in someone's life, you will often advise discipline to correct what's wrong and, and produce more fruit. Um, I know that that was my initial thoughts, but as I start looking at the verse more, I wondered if that's actually not what's happening here. You see, church discipline or discipline from God would come when you're producing no fruit, right? It, it's not when you're doing something well that you need discipline, it's when you're doing something wrong that you need discipline. And look what this branch is doing. He says, every branch that's bearing fruit, he prunes it so it produces more fruit. This is not a non-fruit bearing branch. This is a fruit bearing branch. But God comes in to do a work in the branch to give it even more fruit. So I wonder, and you can challenge me on this if you want, but I don't actually think this is a thing about church discipline or God disciplining you to produce more fruit. Uh, this fruit is already productive. This branch is already productive and he's just helping you become more productive. So how, well, how would this work? I think he's speaking here about the process of maturity that comes as you walk with God made possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we looked at the Holy Spirit's job in John 14. Right? To bring to remembrance the words of Jesus. And as you do that, you can walk in his way and embrace his way and live out life for him. So as the years go by, you look back and go, man, five years ago, I used to live this way, think this way, do this in these situations. And five years later, I now think this way, I do this, and now I think differently. And you're producing more fruit. It's not that you weren't fruitless five years ago. It's just that you're producing more as you get changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I think you also change through times of testing and trials. Testing and trials always produces fruit. Suff I don't know anyone who hasn't gone through suffering that hasn't come out the better end with something they've learned about God or strengthened in their walk with Christ. N none, of us, none of us grow in any area of our lives by being lazy and sitting down and just getting like, and like being slothful. All of us gain through struggle. We gain knowledge and we're more convicted in what's true through struggle. And I think about James, look what he says here. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Maybe you could say produces fruit. And let, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Look at, these are brothers and sisters. They're not in sinful situations. They're under trials and suffering and tough circumstances. And he's saying, this will produce something more in you that you didn't have before. It's not that you're not productive, but you can be even more productive in your walk with God. Isn't it interesting that the Acts Church became its most fruitful under, the, under strict persecution? And this is something to think about. You know, when you, I, this is my prediction. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think when you go to heaven, if, if, if we were to maintain our same skin color... Because we live in North America, you think, oh, I'm going to see a bunch of white people up there. Listen, when you go to heaven, the majority will be Chinese. I think the biggest population of people in heaven will be Chinese. There's 30 million people in Canada, 30 million in Canada. Right now, in the 19, about 1950, around there, there was, 100, there was 1 million Christians in China. 1 million in 1950. In the 2000s, there were 100 million Christians, underground church. 
okay, three times the size, more than three times the size of Canada of Christians in China. Take our nation, triple it, and those people will be in glory. And we, they just started in China. So don't think you're going to have a bunch of white round eye guys up there. It's going to be mostly uh, brown skinned people and you're going to, they're going to have a lot to teach us probably when we get up there. So, actually that's the wrong words. After studying heaven, back here. Back here on earth. Heaven will be on earth. <laughs> a new earth, right. Alright. Well, I don't know if the disciples at this point, after hearing Jesus talk about the fruit-bearing branches and how God's going to deal with them and the non-fruit-bearing branches and how God's going to deal with them, I don't know if they were kind of worried at that point, going, oh my goodness, like which branch am I? Am I a fruit-bearing branch? Am I not? I mean, maybe some of you right now are wondering the same question. And we're going to answer that question, by the way, as the sermon goes on, just to put some of you uh, maybe at ease that if I know some of your personalities, you might want to put it, put it ease over this issue. <laughs> but... Uh, um, uh, the thing about it is, is that uh, what's cool is like, if they were thinking this, Jesus actually gives them reassurance. So this passage, this passage to be a word of encouragement to them, like it is us, not a word of fear and, a, and, a, and to highlight failure. And I think Jesus maybe knew that they were thinking this and wanted to assure them right away. Look at verse three. Uh, he says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Okay, you're already clean. You're already good with me because of the word I spoke to you. Good question. I actually don't know. I was thinking about that. I think it probably is. Yeah, I could do a should do a word study, but I'm, yeah, it would it would imply it. But they they've been initially cleaned anyway by embracing the Messiah and Jesus and all that He's taught them so far. So there's a, I call it the initial cleaning and then the, the continual cleaning, right? You, you, you start off in an initial, you, you become clean at the moment you embrace Jesus, but there's a continuing process of, in that walk with Jesus, right? So I think he's just saying to them, you, you've already been made clean initially and, I'm still, and you're still clean right now. So it's a word of encouragement. Now here's what's interesting. Look at how he confirms in their lives that they're already clean. Why are they to be okay and know that they're okay with him? Because of the word which I have spoken to you. They've already embraced the words of Jesus and have lived out their lives accordingly from the things that they've heard from him. Now yes, they had some pretty sketchy moments in their walk for three years, but in the big part of their lives, Jesus recognized them as embracing his way and embracing his mandate for life. Now this concept of, of obeying commandments and, and, and having an obedient life to his word is throughout the whole passage. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish will be done for you. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in my love. So again, um, there's this, this vote of confidence from Jesus that if you are a commandment keeper and you embrace his word, that you are clean. You're a fruitful branch. You're a fruitful branch. Now that's really important for us as a church. Notice he doesn't say, well, it's what you feel about me. It's your feelings towards me that make you a lover of, or uh, that makes you secure in me as, as a branch and a vine. I'm not saying that feelings aren't important, but that's not his primary indicator of a relationship. 
It's not the amount of songs that we sing about them, right? You're making dinner and you're like, amazing grace, how sweet. And it, no, that doesn't put you in the vine, right? It's a good song, but it doesn't put you in the vine. It's not listening to Shine FM on the way to work. It's not coming to Genesis House on a Sunday morning. It's not because you pray with your kids and your wife before bed. Remaining in the vine, is, is, according to Jesus here, is to obey the word of God that he puts before you. There's no other way to say it. I can't, I can't say it any other way. He says, if you abide in my love, you'll show it by keeping my commandments. Disciples, you're good with me because you listen to my words and have embraced my words. That is the primary indicator of what it is to be a, a genuine Christian. Remaining in Him is all about trusting in Him to the point that we're willing to obey His desires for our lives. And there's no risk of being cut off and living a fruitless life if we make that a regular practice of our lives. So you're wondering, am I a fruitful Christian? Am I in trouble? Am I going to cut off? Here's my question to you. My, it's not my question, it's Jesus's. Are you seeking in the, all areas of your life to learn His Word, apply it to your life, and live it out in the way you live? If the answer is yes, then you're good. You're a fruitful, abiding branch. But if you stubbornly rebel against God and you know His, you know His desires for your life, and you're just basically saying, "I want nothing. I don't want any part of you anymore," then I would say at this point, I'd plead with you to get back on path with the Lord. And, um, and, and if not, I can promise you that you can put yourself at risk of being cut off from the vine. So what are some of Jesus' commandments? Right? If it's, you know, what are some of them? Just let's go through a couple. We are, to forgive, we are to forgive without limit. We are to forgive without limit. We are to, we're not to accumulate treasures on earth, but accumulate them in heaven. We're not to commit adultery against our spouse. We're not to seek to love our kids and our spouses and our parents and so on above Him. We're to love Him first. We're to repent of our sins. We're to seek to love our enemies. And we're to be kind to those who are not kind to us. These are just some of the commandments of Jesus. And if we're willing to obey and embrace these, we get four wonderful promises from the Lord. Four wonderful promises. Let's look at the first one in verses 4 and 5. If you embrace the words of Jesus and live out His commandments, you have, the first promise is this, you're guaranteed to bear fruit. You're guaranteed to bear fruit in your life. Look at 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in me. So neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. From apart from me you can do nothing. So again, you see in verse 4 and 5, you're a guaranteed fruit bearer if you abide in Him. How do you abide in Him? You live to seek, you seek to live to obey His commandments. Fruit is a promise from God out of a mutual indwelling relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I think of people who try to do good things, and, and, I, and, I, and I, I can say this with sincerity, a lot of non-Christian people do good things. I've seen, I've experienced it. Uh, neighbors bring you cookies when you move into a neighborhood or they open the door for you at Walmart and so on and so forth. These are all good things. But they bring, they, it brings them no credit before God. There's no credit before God for doing it. God sees it, but He says, that's of no credit to, to me and you. 
because we still have sin between us that needs to be dealt with. And these are, and these are not my commandments. You know? So, anyway. Uh, that's why he says very strictly here, apart from me you can do nothing. Yeah, because unless you're, there's no fruit to bring to the table unless it's fruit that God asks us to do. So the first thing it does, the first promise we get is a guarantee to be a fruit bearer. Second one is your prayers will be answered. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, I, you guys are pretty smart and pretty slick. I mean, we've been around long enough to, 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 to you guys know that this is, not a, this is not to look at Jesus as a slot machine Jesus, right? Jesus is in heaven and you reach up and go, I want a new car. Ching! Pop! I got my prayers answered. Man, I'd like a bigger bicep or whatever. Ching! Oh, look at that! I got a bit, you know? Or I would like this or I'd like that. It's not a Santa Claus slot machine Jesus. This is very reminiscent of verse, chapter 14, verse 13. Remember he said there, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified. When we went through that verse, remember that was in relationship to evangelism, to spreading the gospel, to, to proclaiming his name and to doing more in the, in the mission field. He said, if you replay, pray in relationship to my purposes and desires for how that looks, I will be there and I will answer those prayers for you. So these are not selfish prayer requests. These are prayers that line up, line up with Jesus, his words, his desires, his thoughts. So basically, it's a prayer life that looks like this. You would pray as if it was the same prayer that Jesus would pray. So if Jesus was to sit down and request something, or he was going to ask something for himself, it'd be that kind of prayer. It's in line with his thinking, in line with his commandments and his way of life. The third thing that promise we get from being uh, abiding in Jesus, besides bearing fruit and having a strong prayer life, is we bring glory to God. Look at verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and prove to be my disciples. We bring honor to God when we live out our lives in obedience to His commands. We, we, we make Him look awesome. And I'm actually experiencing this right now, and I'm really thankful for this opportunity because... Uh, it's given me like the ability to, to share something in my life that's going on, um, which may I may not have had for this sermon in terms of material. But uh, last week I got together with someone in the community. Um, I hope they end up in our church one day. Uh, this person I've been dealing with. And they came to me, and I didn't know what they wanted to talk about. And they just started spewing out their relationship with their children. And how they've just, they're, they're in huge trouble with their kids, and they just are crying out for help. And I started giving her counsel uh, on how to, like, how to re recapture her relationship with her children. At the end, she thanked me for all my advice. And I told her that the advice actually didn't come from me. It came from the scriptures. And it came through a relationship I had with God and through Jesus Christ. And I told her that in and of myself, I'm actually a big dum-dum. And that uh, I have no knowledge of myself. And if it wasn't for God's way for parenting, I would be absolutely lost. And I would have been. My kids would be completely different today if it wasn't for God's design for parenting. They just they would have been spoiled brats. But well, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so sometimes they're brats, but they're still not spoiled. <laughs> but uh, so yeah. So here's what's happening. As we so I tell her that and sort of go. I don't know where it sort of sits with her, 
So this week I meet her again and we go on to round two of our kids. And she was explaining to me what she did from our council to try to rescue her kids. And it was awesome that she tried to implement it. And then we go through the whole thing again. And then at the end of the conversation, she said to me, you got, you, you, this, you got this from the Bible, right? I'm like, yeah, you're right. And so here's what's a cool thing. She's already recognizing that I've already told her, I'm not the smart guy here. This is God's design. I'm obeying his commandments for raising my children. And then she's recognizing that I, she remembers that this is coming from him and not from me. It's a way of her already starting to trust God in a small way because she's like, man, I'm, a, I'm listening to his counsel and, it's, and I'm trying to do this and it's working or it's slowly working, whatever. And I can see now that God must be trustworthy in a small kind of way. You see, that's what he's saying. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit so that you prove to be my disciples. God looks awesome when we go his way in life and then we can proclaim it to other people. He gets the credit. The fourth promise is that we'll have joy. Look at verse 10 and 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may, may be made full. Again, look at how this joy comes. It's not a circumstantial joy, right? The joy isn't because of uh, the circumstances are favorable. The, circum- the, the joy comes from relationship. Comes from relationship. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be, may be made full. It's very reminiscent of peace a couple of weeks ago. When we talked about peace in the church, the peace of Jesus is, comes out of relationship, not circumstances. Likewise, joy comes out of relationship and not circumstances. And oftentimes, actually, when we obey the commandments of Jesus, circumstances actually kind of sometimes can get worse, right? Jesus wants you to live a certain way, and guess what happens? Relationally, you start getting treated differently, right? You start going his way, and there's a little bit more pain in certain areas of life initially. Again, joy doesn't come from the circumstances. But in knowing because you're obedient to his commandments that he are completely loved and under his care. Think about Jesus' own life. He says, look at, listen to his words. Um, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Look at Jesus' life. Denied by one of his best friends. Rejected. Uh, betrayed by one of his best friends. Uh, went to the cross for the sins that he didn't commit. Uh, got led to the edge of a cliff in his hometown to get thrown off the edge because he told them that they were spiritually not right with God. <laughs> uh, attempted stonings in his life on uh, three or four occasions throughout the scriptures. Right? Uh, yet he says, uh, uh, he's, he's, he knows he's loved. He's following out God's commandments. And he's, if anybody had joy, Jesus Christ had joy. And he actually says, my joy, my joy may, may be put in you and it may be made full. So again, Jesus' joy wasn't circumstantial, and neither, do, neither is ours as a Christian. Again, the whole time he was going through his issues, he knew the Father's face shined upon him, and he even said, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. That was outside of circumstances. And again, the, the same can be true and said for us. And the joy that we have through this relationship, through obeying his commandments, abiding in him, is enough to um, make us complete and full. 
what are the lessons we can take away from here? There's a lot, uh, but here's a few. Lesson one. As the vine dresser, God takes a very active role in the life of a believer. Right? As a vine dresser, God takes an active role. I don't know, like some people might think, well, I'm here and God's there, and so he just sort of watches me go through my life on a day-to-day basis. No, he doesn't. He's active in your life. He's active. If you're a non-fruit-bearing, and none of you are in here, by the way, so don't start getting panicky. Um, one of the things I can see anyway, unless God's convicting you right now, then that's another story. But um, I don't know what all you do in your private lives. But, but uh, you know, if you're in the fruit-bearing side, it's awesome. He's daily pruning you. He's daily looking for more productive fruit. And as the more He reveals of His commandments and, and sanctifies you through the Holy Spirit, He's constantly working on you. And that's why, again, I hope now that you have a stronger faith and a better Christian walk than you did five, ten years ago or six months, whatever it's been. If, again, so he takes an active role on a day-to-day basis. And again, he can also sever if he, if he sees that you've basically internally turned against him. But he's working daily to produce more fruit in our lives. And the more we embrace him of his ways, um, the more um, he continues to prune. Second lesson. Neither God nor Jesus are responsible for Christians who lead fruitless lives. It's clear in the passage that the, the vine dresser and the vine are not responsible for the lack of uh, fruit in, this, in the branch. It's the person. He says over and over, you need to remain in me. You need to remain in me. You need to remain in me. If you do that, I will remain in you. I'll remain in you. It's conditional upon the person who is, uh, who is there. And uh, anyway, that's pretty straightforward. I like what Witherington said to Ben Witherington. He's a professor from Kentucky, Asbury Seminary. Colleagues of Al Kopich, for those of you who are on the houseboat who hear Al speak. But uh, Whittington says this, The question here in this passage is not whether, where, not where is the true people of God, but rather how can the true people of God remain faithful and continue to function properly despite the hostile environment they're in? <coughs> so the question is not where are, the true, where are the people of God, it's how are they going to remain faithful despite the hostility and opposition? Which leads me to my third lesson. The marker of a genuine Christian is one who embraces and obeys the commandments of Jesus. I mean, over and over. If you abide in me, it's proven by the, the words that you um, keep. If you abide in me, it's by living out my commandments. It's all about obedience. And there's no other way to slice it. You know, knowledge of the Word of God doesn't give us a relationship. It helps. Trust me, it really helps. And the Holy Spirit can do more with us when we know, we, we know His Word. But knowledge isn't the key. Otherwise, Pharisees would be all in glory. They had the Old Testament memorized. Prerequisite to be a Pharisee. They had to have certain passages like the Old Testament memorized word for word. Close the book and just go. Right? We can do Mary had a little lamb. But other than that, we don't get much farther. And these guys can like, do the whole Old Testament. A lot of these guys could do it. They knew the word of God. didn't put them in a relationship with God. It's how they lived in accordance with the knowledge that they had. So here's how it's going to shape my evangelism from now on. If, if, if the marker of a genuine Christian is one who embraces and obeys the commandments of Jesus, and that's it, then here's, my, here's how my next conversation will go in evangelism. How's it going, uh, Peter? Oh, awesome, man. Yeah, I heard you're doing it. You're, you're, you're a pastor of a church now. Yeah, I am. He says, so you call yourself a Christian? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I am. He goes, so am I. 
So am I. I'd say, that's awesome. Uh, just, can I ask you a question? And he'll, and he'll go, yeah, sure, go ahead. I'll say, I'm just curious. Like, I know what Christianity means to me and how I, I understand Christianity. How do you define Christianity? Like, I, you said you're a Christian, and I'm excited for you. I just wanna, I'm just curious, like, for, to you, what is a Christian? And he'll either stare at me with a blank stare, or he'll give me some answer that's not biblical. Because I feel it, or because, I, because I'm a good person, whatever. And I'll say, you know what? Whatever is it doesn't matter what his answer is. I mean, if he, if he, this is a non-Christian, of course. This is evangelism, right? Not a person in the church, but, but I mean, if he, if it, whatever his answer is, doesn't matter. Here's my next response. You know what? It's interesting you talk about what that looks like to be a Christian, because uh, I've been learning a lot lately. Lot lately has been reading the Bible and stuff. And what's interesting is when I read something in in, in the scriptures lately, is uh, Jesus' words really were convicting to me. Because I was reading something and he said, you know, a genuine Christian is someone that obeys and embraces the commandments of Jesus. And I found it's interesting because there's so many, out, there's so much information out there, so many ways to live and go your, in your life. I was just really curious when, when in our culture where truth is, is relative and everyone can believe whatever they want, Jesus said to be a Christian is to love and obey his commandments. And that's my way in. Interesting, hey? The, 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 the book of John is so practical for how to, to, to embrace people in spiritual conversations. Now, they still might reject the answer at the end, but at least there's an opportunity to speak truth when they come. Lesson four. Uh, believers who choose to remain in the vine will not only bear fruit, but will also bring glory to God, have their prayers answered, and be filled with the joy of Christ. <laughs> Long answer, but those are the four promises summarized, right? Believers who choose to remain in the vine will not only bear fruit, but will also bring glory to God, have a fulfilled prayer life, and be filled with the joy of Jesus. I'll move on to the last lesson, and I'll come back to this, and you guys can write it down when you, because uh, I know you'll probably, just a longer lesson. Here's a final lesson. The joy we experience as Christians is not based on circumstances, but in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? Just like peace. It's funny that joy and peace are fruits of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Love, joy, patience, peace, kindness. They're two fruits of the Holy Spirit. And peace is not, it's not circumstantial. And neither here is joy. Joy is all to do with relationship. And I love Paul. Paul said, I know the secret of contentment. I know what it is to be content. I know what it is to have joy. He says, it's not how, many, how, many, how much clothes I have, if I'm either, like, either naked or like, you know, stripped down or I've, I've got lots. It's not on how much food I have, if I'm amply supplied for with, in, in terms of fed or starving. It's not whether I'm in jail or in, in, out of jail. It's not how things are going relationally with my peers and my friends. He says, I know what it is to be content. It's in, it's in knowing Jesus Christ. He says that right in the scriptures. <coughs> now, it's easy to say that, another thing to experience that, but it is possible to experience that and get there because Paul sure did. <laughs> but there's an there's a opportunity for us. Maybe that's where the pruning comes in. That's what God's trying to do to us. He's trying to get us to a place with Paul where he keeps pruning us to the place that we can, we can know what it is to have joy despite the circumstances we face.